0: False Friends of the Mass and Holy Eucharist, of the Saints, and of Fatima. A question and answer session held at the conference, Fatima, the Moment Has Come, hosted by the Fatima Center in Manchester, New Hampshire. Participants include Father Michael Rodriguez, Father James Maudsley, and Christopher Ferrara, President and Chief Counsel of the American Catholic Lawyers Association. All right,
1: well welcome back to the QA session. We have you you came through, we have a ton of questions. I don't know that we're gonna be able to make it through them all, but we'll try our best. So I'll direct the question to one of the panelists. We have Father James Maudsley, Christopher Ferrara, and Father Michael Rodriguez as our panelists today. And I'll address the question to one of them and then the others can weigh in as they see fit. So our first question is to Father Maudsley. Father, can you please explain the difference between the Latin Mass and the New Mass? The prayers seem to be similar, but we believe in the Latin Mass and would like to be better educated on the differences when talking to others about it.
2: I think uh, in God's eyes, it's the same thing. It's the sacrifice of Christ on Calvary, and he's looking at the deepest level, uh, at what Christ is doing in the Mass, offering himself. But as far as human beings and in the church are concerned, they're so. Different, and the prayers are utterly different I'd recommend either online or buy a book with the prayers side by side and you see that the Mass has been gutted to produce the Novus Ordo Michael Davies wrote how it's very comparable to what Thomas Cranmer did at the Reformation so if you look at the prayers at the foot of the altar or the offertory prayers or the canon they are so completely different and the old mass is beautiful and rich and the novice wants to make friends with the world um,
3: and it doesn't work I would say it's even worse than what Cren had in mind I, <laughs> I remember I was on a trip to uh, Columbia, South Carolina to get admitted to the bar and I saw this Anglican church I went into the Anglican church And I opened up the Book of Common Prayer, and I said, Wow, I wish the normal Zorda read like this. (laughs) But not if you read the articles at the beginning. No, well, the articles at the beginning, yeah. But, I mean, the language was more dignified. But then I went up to the uh, communion rail with the tour guide, and I I noticed there were pillows in front of the communion rail. And I said to the tour guide, who knew I was a Catholic, You mean to say you kneel for Holy Communion here? And he said, Oh, yeah, we make a big deal of it, not like you Catholics. That's how bad eh? things are.
4: I do want to address this because I do think that the problems are very, very grave. What Father Motsley alluded to when he said that you know God sees the same thing—I mean, that's true—but I still think that they're very grave problems because I guess that could also be phrased in this way: There's some of the Catholics that they know both the traditional Latin Mass and the new Mass. And they'll ask the question, they'll say, Father, well, but isn't the new Mass valid? Kind of trying to make it seem that the only question is one of validity. Let's say whether or not bread and wine are transformed, transubstantiated into the body and blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. And even granting that everything is done the way it's supposed to in the new Mass and that it is a valid Mass that doesn't mean that it's something that's pleasing to God or that it's not creating grave harm to the church or that it's not something that's being done in disobedience to God. Because sometimes, I mean, this is a little bit of an exaggeration. Well, I mean, it is an exaggeration, but I mean, you can have like a satanic mass that is a valid mass. And just because something is valid does not mean that it's something that we should be doing. But another example that I think is a little bit better is... Now, this isn't exactly the new Mass, but it's not... It's really not too much of an exaggeration. I'll tell the faithful that, look, if you were to go to a Mass, let's say that, you know, the priest were to do... it We're talking about the new Mass. Let's say the priest were to follow what he's supposed to follow. But let's just say that at the point of communion, he would take the precious body of Christ throw it to the ground, and let's just say, whatever, go and sit down in his chair. Now, is that a valid Mass? Well, again, if he, we're assuming he had the correct intention, followed the, has the matter in form, so it's a valid Mass. But, what Catholic in their right mind would continue to go to such a Mass, if every time you went to that Mass, that's what would be taking place? See, what would be foremost in your mind wouldn't be the question of validity. See, if you went to that kind of a Mass, you wouldn't come back to me and say, Father, you know, is that a valid Mass? No, you would say, Father, what was done at that Mass was something completely sacrilegious. How can any Catholic, if he or she has the Catholic faith and love for what the Mass is, how could any Catholic do that? How could any Catholic allow that? And I very much think that that's kind of at the level that what we're at with the new Mass. When you say what are some of the differences, there are many, many differences, but a few examples is just the prayers at the offertory of the traditional Latin Mass are beautiful prayers. They're sacrificial prayers. They're recognizing that they're in a way kind of preparing the bread and wine to be changed into the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's kind of preparing the victim for the sacrifice. A recognition that this is going to be the great sacrifice. Basically, all of the offertory prayers of the traditional Latin Mass that are quite ancient have been completely eliminated. They're completely new prayers that you have in the new Mass. The sign of the cross. The sign of the cross, which is a very powerful sacramental, I mean, it has great power also against the devil, particularly when it's in the context of, of the holy sacrifice of the mass. I don't know the exact number. Actually, Father Mosley might have a better read on all the numbers of the signs of the cross that are made. But the vast majority of the signs of the cross have been completely eliminated in the new mass. And you know, you sometimes people will say, well, there's not that much difference. It's just the language. No, it's not just the language. I mean... What does the language have to do with eliminating almost all of the signs of the cross from the Catholic Mass? I mean, the only one who would really want to do that is, I mean, seriously speaking, is the devil. So those are just a few, but just one real quick other example. This wasn't actually done to the Mass, but many of you have heard of Bonini. The main, let's say, liturgist, theologian that was in charge of the changes that were going to be made to the Mass, his actual intention was to completely eliminate what's called the Roman canon. This is the absolute most important prayer of the Mass. It goes back. It does, that Roman canon goes back to the time of the Apostles. You could basically say, it's our most sacred prayer as Catholics. That's the great prayer in the Mass within which the consecration takes place. And his intention was to completely eliminate that prayer. At least on that, Pope Paul VI did not allow it. But he was very shrewd, he's very cunning, like a serpent. And so what they did, and this is what happens in the new mass, what they did is they added a number of new, what are called the Eucharistic prayers in the new mass. And in practice, what's happening is there very few of the new Masses that are being offered with the Roman canon, which in the new Mass is called Eucharistic Prayer Number One? Almost all of the new Masses that are being offered are using Eucharistic Prayer Number Two, Number Three, maybe Number Four. And so basically, what you have in the vast majority of the new Masses is you have Masses that are missing the most important and the most sacred prayer in our Catholic religion. So, thank you.
3: Just a quick point on validity, the, the argument that, uh, well, it's valid, it can be reduced to absurdity very quickly, so you say to someone who makes that argument. So if a priest comes out and says, good morning, this is my body, this is my blood, have at it. Is that a Mass? So obviously we need the text and we need the rubrics because they convey to us the, visibly and audibly the substance of the faith, as Cardinal Ratzinger said. And he said of the new Mass, if the substance of the faith is no longer visible in the liturgy, where can we find it? So these things have to be made visible to people. And that's what the texts and the rubrics of the Mass are all about. And if you make those things ridiculous, then people lose faith in the Eucharist because the Mass is ridiculous.
1: Our next question is for Chris. Chris, I saw a book by you called False Friends uh, of Fatima. Please explain that title.
3: Well, these are people who pretend to be devotees of the message of Fatima and... Its wonderful plan for peace in the world, and they go on and on in praise of Our Lady, but then they undermine any portion of the message that would cut against the narrative of the post-conciliar hierarchy, which is that we're in the middle of a great renewal. Isn't it marvelous how the faith has been revitalized and the church has opened itself to the world and things have never been as good in the church as they are now, thanks to the springtime of Vatican II. They won't allow any element of the Fatima message to contradict that narrative, and they labor to conceal any aspect of the message that says, following the Council, there will be a collapse of faith and discipline in the Church. And the people who are doing this, who praise Fatima, are the very ones indicted for the situation over which they've presided. So the last thing they want us to know about the Fatima message, which they praise as they bury it, is what the Third Secret has to say about the coming apostasy in the Church. But as I mentioned, in 2010... Pope well, Benedict went to Fatima on pilgrimage. He had questions posed to him during the airborne press conference. He selected them, and one of the questions that was posed to him was, is there anything in the third secret about the pedophile crisis in the church? Now, why was he having that question presented to him? The vision has nothing to do with a pedophile crisis. It's a pope being executed outside a half-ruined city. But then he goes on to say, Yes, the vision concerns future realities of the church, which are little by little revealing themselves. And he said that the secret speaks of how the greatest threat to the church is sin within the church. We have always known this, but today we see it in modo veramente terrificante, in a really terrifying way. All of this, he said, in response to a question he wanted to be asked to him So when Sochi read this, he said, the Pope has reopened the dossier on the Third Secret of Fatima.
1: The next question uh, to fathers, um, there's a common theme among three questions. Uh, First is a quote from your talk, Father Maudsley. We are serving Satan by receiving the Eucharist in the hand. What is the difference between the tongue and the hand, both of which belong to the body God has given us? The second related question, can a priest or bishop get into trouble by refusing to grant communion on the tongue? And uh, the third question, in the same vein, for people who have served as lay, extraordinary Eucharistic ministers, and or received by the hand,
2: should that be confessed as a sin? Um, To the second, very briefly, a priest can't get in trouble for giving communion on the tongue with God. And that's what matters. Um, For the first, the difference. In the book of Judith, she says that the enemies of israel cannot overcome them so long as they're obeying god's law but that the people in jerusalem are so terrified by the the syrian army coming in they're about to eat the things that are dedicated to god the stores there in the temple and even to touch them with their hands which he says was never conceived or allowed and that is for old testament offerings of wheat or wine how much more for the holy eucharist we shouldn't touch with our hands metaphysically we can do nothing without God we have to receive from him and with your hands it's the idea you're feeding yourself with the Holy Eucharist as if you can save yourself when you receive on the tongue it's clear, you're like a baby you can't do anything for yourself except receive and that's the proper attitude we need to have and the third question was
4: I think I think they need to confess they need to confess that they've touched you,
2: you, when you realize that, that is not how we should treat the Holy Eucharist you could confess that you've not been as attentive to God as you should and to to his order and that you've unknowingly sinned against it Um, so the sin is in the will it's not strictly speaking a a sin but materially it is Um, if not formally but once you become aware of that then you have to cease and if you persist that would certainly be a sinful confession The
1: next question is uh, directed to Father Rodriguez. If Pope John Twenty Third disobeyed Our Lady, uh, presumably by not revealing the Third Secret, how is it possible that he was canonized a saint? Could he now intercede for us? And I guess that similar question could be asked about all the post-conciliar popes.
4: Unfortunately, with a lot of the recent canonizations that have taken place, especially the canonizations that have taken place under the pontificate yeah. of Francis... Like especially also Pope Paul the Sixth, I kind of get confused now and uh, I'm not even sure when Pope John Paul the Second was canonized, but most definitely, there are serious problems with those canonizations, just beginning with the fact that the whole canonization process has also been altered, in other words, how the Catholic Church has i mean the very rigorous investigation that they've done in order to proclaim Someone a saint That that has been changed I can't tell you exactly Who the cardinals are or I I don't remember the exact names But you even have also Vatican officials that They've even come out And again especially in the Pontificate of Francis II Where they've actually Basically even changed The understanding You could say of what a saint is They've said things like Because they're canonized, it doesn't mean now that they have to, you know, whatever, live, let's say, uh, an exemplary life. Basically, it's been a change. Because of that, I would say, I do think there is a serious doubt whether, you know, these canonizations are at the level of previous canonizations. By the same token, I don't really think that should surprise us that much. I mean, the gravity of the crisis in the church today is very, very serious. And I think our big problem is that there are far too many Catholics that they continue to go about their business as if everything in the church is running as usual. And so, okay, if a canonization is made, well, then it, it must be a canonization. And, you know, if the bishop says something, if the bishop cancels uh, masses because of the pandemic, then, well, then we shouldn't go to mass. I mean, it goes on and on and on and on. It is very unfortunate, and this is why we do have such a grave crisis in the church because I think the next question would be valid. Well, then, can we trust anything that's coming our way from the hierarchy? And sadly, I would say it is a legitimate question. I would say it's kind of hard to trust anything. But I do think that's the reality. I think that's why it's so important. I mean, people who don't think the Fatima message is urgent, I would say, if you don't think that's telling you that it's urgent that we get... Help from heaven here for our beloved church what what signs do you need, but also all the more reason to pray a lot for our hierarchy for our priests, for our bishops, for Francis and and to keep doing your very best to learn your faith well so that you can you know recognize that a lot of the things that are being done right now in the church sadly are not being done correctly
3: with the uh, canonization process, we have a, a conundrum. And it involves the process because canonization wasn't always a papal function there were local canonizations by bishops a lot of those were suspect I think it was around the 1100s the popes began to take charge of the canonization process and they developed a rigorous verification process the lives of the prospective saints were examined the miracles were attested to by medical commissions and when a firm dossier was built up then the Pope would review it, and he would then issue, if he were convinced of the sanctity and the uh, worthiness of this person to be elevated to the altars, the papal formula, I declare, define, and pronounce that so-and-so is a saint and is to be venerated by the universal church. So the question is, what is the role of the process? Do we need a process? The Pope seemed to think so. Then he seemed to think that we needed a historical investigation, we needed a scientific investigation to see if these were real miracles, So then the question becomes if the process is obviously compromised for political reasons or other reasons so that the miracles begin to look a little fishy. So, for example, with a lot of these recent saints, we say that, uh, we're told that it was a miracle, there's several of these canonizations, one of them, Ocho Romero, it was a miracle that a problem pregnancy resulted in a normal delivery. (laughs) I've seen three or four examples at least of this. That's not a miracle. It happens every day in maternity wards. How many mothers have been told their children will be born defective? And the child was not born defective. Or there was a problem in the womb that corrected itself without any intervention of a a saint. So when you begin to see that there's a political process involved as well as an investigatory process, there's political pressure, and that so many so-called saints are being canonized, I'm not saying they're not saints. I'm saying questions arise. And the Church has never declared de fide that the mere pronunciation of the formula by the Pope means that it's an act of the infallible magisterium. Because, again, if it were that simple, why would the Pope need an investigation? He would just wait for an inspiration and say, I declare that you're a saint. He could point to you and say, you're a saint. Would that make you a saint? No, there needs to be study and there needs to be investigation. And when that process is corrupted, and you see more and more a saint factory is being erected, then you begin to wonder whether you can question it and I don't say that these people are or aren't saints I just say doubts doubts have arisen
2: Uh, not many years ago a formula or a way was worked out to be able to offer use the 1962 missile say a mass of Paul VI which the word in congress doesn't really fit it, he destroyed this mass And shall we now use the 62 missile to say a mass of him, not for him? He needs masses for his soul, why not? But not as he being the saint of the day. I think it's all just a reason to stay with the pre-55.
1: Our next question is for Father Modsley. Father, is God a male or female?
2: This this is not meant as a disrespectful question. No one has seen God, right? Except... uh, the son of God came down and revealed himself to us as male and all through the scriptures um, God teaches us to think of him as male we should think of the divinity as male as that active, determining form and creation as female as receptive, as determined Um, that said, female is a reality right? and every reality has to find its source in God so in God there is something that we perceive here as male-female at the deepest level I think it is if Thomas Aquinas describes the personhood of the father and the son as active generation and passive generation the father generates the son is generated so you have active and passive in regard to generation that's the identity of the father and son paternity and filiation is about generation active and passive and that's just awesome because that's what a man and a woman are in, in their marriage Without, we've got to be careful not to project earthly created things into the Trinity or we will become heretics, right? But even then, the Father and Son are a single active principle from which the Holy Spirit proceeds as a passive inspiration. The Holy Spirit is passive in regard to Father and Son and they're active in regard to the Holy Spirit. So you have the same active, passive complementarity. And then between Creator and Creation it's God who's completely active and creation completely passive and being created. And this reality, this union, is in everything in the universe, which Aristotle says is a combination of form and matter. Form is the active principle, matter is the passive principle. And they fit each other perfectly, as Father and Son, or as Father and Son and Spirit. And finally, between the efficient cause of something and the final cause of something, it's the same relation with the final cause as the active determining principle and the efficient cause as perfectly receptive to that it means that everything that happens in the beginning is straining towards a goal that's already been given so if if we want to understand male, female and in God I think this active, passive and that we understand our soul as the passive against God as female, as receptive and our lady is the best example of one who's completely open and receptive to being formed by God.
3: Now, well, what you just heard is a priest who's had the kind of formation we wish every priest had. <laughs> because the traditional formation of the priesthood, which Father represents, is a formation in which one learns to tell the difference between one thing and another. <laughs> and that's what's being attacked today what we see today in our society is a war on being itself on the trinity on the trinity above all and that's reflected in the whole transgender nonsense the idea that there is no such thing as male and female sex because the created order in which one thing is different from another is exactly what indicates the existence of the creator God and this is why they rebel against it that was a magnificent presentation Father thank you
1: our next question is for Chris Uh, Chris Can we conclude that the Blessed Virgin Mary gave us the third secret through her apparitions at Akita? And in answer to that, can you uh, explain what those apparitions were?
3: Well, the apparitions at Akita were apparitions to Sister uh, Sasagawa, the visionary whom Bishop Ito said had received authentic apparitions of the Blessed Virgin and the content of those messages Bishop Ito deemed to be authentic. His successor, predictably enough, undermined that. But we can take it to the bank that those were authentic apparitions, confirmed by the the miracle of the statue that cries real tears. I was in Japan. I met her. She wasn't allowed to talk about the apparitions or the contents of the message. But one message on July 13, 1973, was to the effect that if men do not change their ways, fire will rain down from heaven, destroying a greater part of humanity, the good along with the wicked, and the living will envy the dead. That's to which my sister once said, but I already envy the dead. (laughs) Because she's at a more advanced stage of the spiritual life than her brother. (laughs) Now, Cardinal Ratzinger is said to have declared that the message of Akita and the message of Fatima are essentially the same message. And he said this to the Portuguese ambassador, the Philippines ambassador to the Vatican, whose name escapes me. Do you remember his name? Mr. Uh, D. Yes, it's D, right D. Uh, so we have an identity now think about the vision the vision is an angel directing flames toward the earth which are repelled by the virgin yes but not before we see the half ruined city so obviously there's a chastisement to some great extent in which a city is ruined and a pope is assassinated and this involves a flaming sword and what does the message of Acuda say Flame, fire will rain down from the heavens destroying a greater part of humanity So I think it's logical to conclude that the apparition to Sister Sassegala in 1973 is a further indication of the third secret. Uh,
1: Father Rodriguez, the next question is for you, and this has to do with your discussion about the identity of the Holy Father. Is not a pope excommunicated since I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Ete, what a sentence, yes. thank you, Father, uh, for rejecting some doctrine and papal encyclicals, and what would this mean regarding obedience to him? So, is Francis essentially excommunicated as a result of his rejection of certain doctrines?
4: It's, uh, it's complicated. <laughs> it is. Thank you, Father. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> no, it is complicated. It, it really is very complicated. Right now, that's why it's a controversy. It is very complicated because you have to make distinctions between what is a material heretic, what is a formal heretic. You have to also go and see what processes, Chris was talking a little bit about processes, what processes have been in place in the church to be able to address this issue of, let's just say, the possibility of a heretical pope or what do you do if the pope is a heretic. You have any number of different theologians in the history of the Catholic Church where, it's um, again, it's not something that is absolutely clear-cut. And that's also what makes it very difficult right now is that we are in a kind of difficult situation. I do think, I mean, my view is there is obviously a process in place but really, that's up to the Cardinals. I mean, they're the ones that, let's say, have to kind of like, let's say, get the ball rolling to really have something formally take place. And they're not willing to do that at this point. And so it just adds to the confusion. So, yeah, I guess I'll leave it at that here. um I think, yeah, Chris is saying, man it's a it's a hornet's nest but um, yeah uh, the year
3: was 1521 and Luther is summoned to the diet of worms which is what they want us to eat these days <laughs> and he's given a chance to defend his propositions or to recant so he has a trial and he refuses to recant and so condemnations are issued and then he's declared excommunicated by Pope Leo the tenth. so he had a process he had a trial he had a verdict he had a sentence you can't do that with a Pope so what the State of are saying is the Pope gets less consideration than Martin Luther. It can't be. So we're left with another conundrum. We're not in any position to say the Pope has deposed himself on account of heresy. Does he spout heresies all over the place? Of course he does. It's manifest. There's no doubt about that. Some of the things he says are completely contrary to the faith. So effectively we have um, a validly elected anti-Pope in a sense who's undermining the papacy. And even someone like Jeff Miras, you know the name Jeff Miras? He's a you know, middle-of-the-road, pretty sober Catholic commentator of the conservative Catholic stripe. He's not a traditionalist, and he wrote a column about seven years ago entitled, This Disastrous Papacy, in which he said that Pope Francis is a, a danger to the faith. It's simply true. We can't deny it. But what does it get us to say that he's deposed himself? What's the practical benefit of that? There is none. Uh, What we do is what we have to do. We don't follow him when he utters errors, and we resist him to the extent that he would try to impose upon the church anything contrary to the faith. And the tradition of papal resistance goes back all the way to St. Peter, who was resisted by St. Paul, because St. Peter was refusing to eat with the Gentiles. That seems like a trivial thing, but it's not a trivial thing. If he refuses to eat with the Gentiles, he's saying, this religion that Christ established is not for the Gentiles, which would have been a tremendous scandal and would have crippled the church at the very beginning of her mission. And Paul rebuked him to the face for doing that. You should be eating with the Gentiles. This is the new religion, the universal religion. So it goes all the way back to St. Paul, and St. Thomas says we have a duty in those cases to resist an abuse of authority and not to do so... Is indiscreet obedience, which is wrongful. It's all, well, even sinful to not resist something that involves a depredation against the faith. We have a duty to resist. St. Bellamine says this, St. Cajetan says this, all the writers say this. And so the issue is one of resisting a wayward pope, not declaring that he's lost his seat. We're in no position to do that well it's difficult to get clear
4: answers
2: it's important to have the conversation and to express one's confusion and doubts and to ask priests and bishops about this so they know about the trouble in the church from this shepherds should be looking to the flock too often their eyes are just on their superiors how to please them so the flock need to make some noise to get their attention and then maybe they will deal with the problem
1: I'm going to try to get through two more questions. Uh, this one to you, Father Maudsley. What do you think would be the best way to help a priest who does not yet understand the Latin Mass to fall in love with it and offer it to all who
2: long for it? Um, have dinner with him and a conversation and um, you yourself need to fall in love with the traditional Mass and make sure you're there every Sunday or every day. Um, and that will, if anything come through and convince him otherwise it's hard and poking him, badgering him is not going to help a great deal what's we'll that the question? Yeah,
4: I think something that's also helpful is if you get like good literature I mean if you find I'm trying to think right off the top of my head what could some of that good literature be but it's something that helped me I mean I think if you can get the priest to just read a bit more on let's say the differences between let's say the new Mass or the traditional Latin Mass or some of the problems with the origin of the new Mass uh, I think that can also be a big help it's not easy though I mean I think it's a good question I think it's an important question because obviously it's I think an area where it's very important to try to like make inroads how do we get more priests to begin to appreciate the traditional Latin Mass and then offer it um, but you've got to look for ways to try to get the material in, in their hands so that like their eyes will also be opened um, obviously without question you know pray for them you know pray that the Holy Ghost and that our Blessed Mother will open their minds and open their hearts to that thank you David David just gave me a couple of uh, books in terms of let's say maybe good reading material what you could possibly give to the priest and that's the Michael Davies Trilogy I don't know how many of you are familiar with it but that's very good it's a trilogy. I think the first volume deals specifically with the Second Vatican Council. The second volume, specifically, I think, with the with the Mass. I'm not correct. No, the,
2: the second and one is Pope John's Council. The third one is Paul VI New Mass, and the first oh, one is Cram's. Tram- Tram- oh, that's right.
4: Cram's. Oh, yeah. thank you, thank you Father the Yeah, the, I, the I, 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 Yeah, okay. So the particular one, maybe most relevant in terms of the question, would be Volume Three because that's Pope Paul the Six New Mass. Yeah. yeah. So Volume Three, in particular, of Michael Davies' trilogy. There's also a real good book that I, I uh, was off my radar. Thank you, David. There's a book that was put out some years back by the SSPS where they interviewed about maybe about 15 or 16 priests that actually had made the transition from the new Mass to the traditional Latin Mass. And they basically just interview them and those priests kind of give a witness of basically a story of their conversion. I definitely would say I think that could be a very good one because if you give the priest that book, they can actually read the testimonies, kind of like the experiences of a fellow priest. And that book is called Priest, Where is Your Mass? That's put out, I imagine, still by Angelus Press. So th- those are a, a few examples there.
1: Uh, time for one final question for all of the panelists. Uh, what should young adults, and I would say uh, all people, uh, do in preparation uh, for the terrible times uh, ahead? What should we do to prepare for the terrible times ahead?
3: Freeze-dried <laughs> <dry> food?
0: <laughs> I was
4: going to say, let Chris make a joke right now.
3: <laughs> well, obviously the daily rosary is essential because as Our Lady promised, you will not be conquered by misfortune if you pray her rosary devoutly. I haven't always been faithful to that. For the last 10 years or so, it's been every day, and it causes immensely beneficial changes in your life if you pray the daily rosary. You get graces that sustain you, even imperceptibly, and you don't fall into errors that you had fallen into before just because you pray this prayer. And even if you're only doing your best to meditate on the rosaries, at least you're making, meditate on the mysteries, at least you're making the effort. So that's essential. That's the atomic weapon in our arsenal. If everybody prayed the rosary, I'm thinking of the famous historic example of how there was a rosary crusade in Austria in which only 10% of the population participated, and for some strange reason, the Soviets just up and left. And if you read historical literature on this, the historians really don't know why this happened. They don't have a rational explanation for why they would give up such choice real estate. They just left after there was a rosary procession in the street by a million people and a rosary rally throughout the country. Again, 10% of the population. And if 10% of the population of this country prayed the rosary for the upcoming election, the red wave would be guaranteed. Not only that, if the Catholic Church, talking about what we can do for the future, get the bishops to activate themselves. Let's assume the bishops had opposed the idiotic COVID lockdowns And every bishop had gone to his cathedral, stood in front of it and said, there will be mass here on Sunday, there will be no lockdown, come and arrest me. Not one of them would have been arrested. And the whole thing would have stopped in its tracks. There would have been no lockdowns of any churches. And because the churches weren't locked down, nothing else would have been locked down. Same with abortion if the bishops led a crusade in the streets like the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. To end abortion in this country, it wouldn't last six months. State by state, it would be shut down, invalidated. So the church is a sleeping giant. So pray the rosary and pray that the bishops and that the hierarchy of the church come to life again. Romano Amario in this great book, Iota Unum. Write this down, I-O-T-A, U-N-U-M. Everything I've written about the crisis in the church is a comic book compared to this book. So go get his book. He says at the end that the world is capable of rising in a new metanoia, a great social transformation, which it cannot initiate, but would respond to if it were offered. And all the church has to do is make the offer in a serious way, but it's not happening right now.
4: Yes, I would strongly urge you. I mean, there's a lot we could say in terms of, you know, yes, how do we prepare for the probably very terrible times that were that are coming up? But to just give a very short answer, I would say, look, uh, grow in your devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. I mean, obviously what Chris said about the Daily Rosary is a very important element in that. But I would kind of just expand it and say, look, grow in your devotion to her. There's a book that I like a lot. I think it's very helpful to just meditate and appreciate more and more the life of, the beautiful life of our Blessed Mother. It's called The Life of Mary as Seen by the Mystics. It's put out by Tan. I would strongly recommend that. I, I think it's fairly easy reading. I think it can be very beneficial, very, very spiritually beneficial. I would definitely also encourage you to read the book by St. Louis de Montfort called The Secret of the Rosary. It's probably the best book out there in terms of just its simplicity, succinctness, and also, you know, really packs a powerful punch there. I think it will also really motivate you to pray the rosary and help you to appreciate the rosary more and more. Because I think there are many Catholics that sometimes maybe there's a temptation to kind of get bored by the rosary and just think, well, you know, I'm I'm praying the same prayers over and over. I think that if you... You know, take the time and make the effort to read the book Secret of the Rosary, again by St. Louis de Montfort. It'll be a big, big help. And then just off the top of my head, another book I'd recommend is also True Devotion to Mary. True Devotion to Mary by also St. Louis de Montfort, which would involve long term also the consecration. I mean, consecrating yourself to our Blessed Mother, those are some of the ways that you can grow in your devotion to our Blessed Mother the other book I'd recommend is The Glories of Mary by St. Alphonsus Liguori and St. Alphonsus Liguori also he gives you in that book he also gives you some very practical ways to practice Marian devotion you know talk about for example you know visiting like making a visit to a to Marian shrines and a number of the saints will talk about you know praying the Hail Mary at the strike of every hour You know, every hour praying Hail Mary Obviously, I think something very beautiful is also, you know, offering flowers to our Blessed Mother. You know, we have a group of, actually some of them here today from my little chapel where we have ladies there at, our, at the different chapels that, you know, like this, who will prepare the flowers for our Blessed Mother. I think that's something also very beautiful. I mean, do it with love. Really do it out of, as a way to honor her and to show her that, that you love her. All of these are small ways that you can practice devotion to Mary. I'd say, look, that's really, really important. The saints tell us, I think also in particular, St. Alphonsus the gory I mean, if we're devoted to our Blessed Mother, you know, our salvation is, you know, guaranteed. So.
2: Um, for people in their 20s, I'd recommend three months in prison.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> it will prepare you for what's coming. And if you can't secure that, then one month in a monastery make an extreme retreat at Advent or Lent really basic and if you don't want to trouble a monastery get together ten of you find that old property very basic eight of you get solitary confinement for a month and the other two the worst two cooks have to cook rice twice a day every day and that's all with a, with a bit of something else so you eat poor food you're in isolation um, and and You get the Bible and it will detach you from all the foolish things of this world, the passing things. And it will terrify you because your own company is actually a lot worse than you think. So most of us, I know it's horrible. We need to be forced into it almost. um, And it's not nice looking in your soul. and And you have to attach yourself to God because there's nothing else. And after that, you will fear nothing. Thank you, Father Maudsley. Thank you, Chris.
1: Thank you, Father Rodriguez. Thank you for all of your questions. We didn't get through them all, but we'll keep them. Uh, We bid you, uh, Chris, a a safe flight home and a happy 40th anniversary.
0: presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. May it serve to make Our Lady's message of Fatima better known, loved, and obeyed by all. For more resources regarding Fatima and the Catholic faith, and to support this apostolate with your donations, we invite you to visit our website, www.fatima.org or call us at 1-800-263-8160. And may God reward you. Immaculate Heart of Mary, pray for us.